0: Everybody, to the 21st episode of Quarantined Market Podcast, where some academics get together in the current historical moment and discuss particular keywords. The keyword today is snack. And uh, as guest, we have Amanda Berlan. And uh, Alan, would you like to introduce Amanda?
1: Yes, I would. Amanda Berlan works at the Montford University in Leicester. Uh, Her work tends to focus on areas of cocoa production, especially in relation to aspects like corporate social responsibility, child rights. Um, She is a social anthropologist by training and tends to bring a very unique perspective to her work. So the term that we've come up with today is snacks, uh, or we could also say sweets or candy. Amanda, just as... Chocolate production and candy production seems to be embedded and entangled with colonial history. So, too, it seems to be particularly important for marketing history. I'm thinking now of around the 1930s when some of the best-known marketing brands of all time were created. Do you think there's any particular reason why that era generated so much chocolate and, uh, and, and, and how it's made such a lasting impression upon consumer culture?
2: I guess I can't really speak about why at that particular time um, the particular brands of chocolate emerged. I mean, obviously, they've had a very, very enduring legacy in people's um, consumption and people's emotional associations with chocolate, which is very much, you know, things that takes them back to their childhood. And again, I think that's one of the reasons why people talk with such fondness about Kit Kats and Mars bars and M&Ms and all those kinds of things. I mean, those things really are very very central and things like easter eggs as well are again a big part of people's childhood and all those kind of things when it comes to marketing of chocolate i think that the marketing revolution that we saw in the 30s and 40s is kind of again happening all over again but in a very very different way so now we've suddenly got bars of chocolate that are making all sorts of claims that you would never have seen in the past. So, you know, people are talking about, um, people have got all sorts of things emblazoned on their their bars. Great taste, gold, you know, 65% dark, 120-yard conch grown in St. Lucia by island growers, handcrafted from been to bar. I've um, got a bar here that says satisfyingly chocolatey with fruity notes of dark cherry and black currant, particularly good with a vintage red wine or port. And it seems that actually marketers have gone into complete overdrive in the area of craft chocolate. And this is the new big thing, the, the new kid on the block who's made its arrival in a very big, very flamboyant way. And again, it sort of shows us that chocolate as a product has so many associations with it. And it's such a way now of affirming people's moral convictions through buying, you know, fair trade, organic, non-GMO and all those kind of things. But it's also a way of saying, hey, look what a sophisticated consumer I am. I'm not just eating a Mars bar. I'm eating an endangered species chocolate that's natural with 88% cocoa, that's non-GMO, gluten-free bear trade and has 10% of its net profits donated to, you know, protecting wildlife.
0: I was thinking about that exactly when I was uh, considering the idea of snack for this episode. Because uh, in its traditional form, uh, the kind of chocolate bar, a Kat or a Mars or what have you, I was thinking that the snack in that form is sort of a pinnacle of a commodified object. Uh, it's uh, enjoyable. It's obviously unhealthy. It has all these hedonic appeals. It's a commodity that in this sense also commodifies because it is a symbol for you that you can keep constantly on the move. You can be stay in business. You can be in haste. You don't have to sit down for a meal. You don't, you don't have to slow down. So in this traditional form, it is a weird quagmire. It's something that is supposed to, to be indulged, but also something that is supposed to keep your life in constant hastiness in a commodified form. It's an obvious sign of irrefutable progress when now you have these specialized, healthy bars that promise the world for you.
2: And again, it's funny because in the 30s and 40s, again, we were, in fact, also before then, we were always promised that chocolate was a really healthy product. So when chocolate started being manufactured in the very, very early days, it was very much manufactured as a healthy alternative to alcohol. And this was a message that was pushed by the uh, mainly Quaker manufacturers. And also there was a drive towards producing better quality chocolate that wasn't contaminated with sawdust and all sorts of horrible things. So. You know initially we were told okay so this is a chocolate that's healthier that's better for you it's not as bad as alcohol it's it's cleaner than the cheaper nastier brands that contain sawdust and goodness knows what and then in the 30s and 40s we moved towards this idea of you know chocolate being you know this healthy thing that gave you energy that sustained you that was good for athletes and now of course we're told well chocolate's good for your heart and actually if you get chocolate with the right amount of flavonols in it, again, it delivers very substantial health benefits. So again, there's a constant reinvention of chocolate being healthy in various different ways and to various different guises and of course I'm not saying it's not true you know I'm not saying that you know it's not better than I don't know drinking a load of alcohol or you know it's not of course it's better for it not to be adulterated of too many things and I'm not saying that there aren't considerable benefits to flavonols but it's funny these cycles of reinvention that it goes through and we keep coming back to health that seems to be a key thing
1: now, Amanda, I know that you're interested in chocolate from the perspective of sustainability. Could you give an example of how these issues arise with the Easter egg?
2: Obviously, chocolate is very, very embedded in gift exchange. And you don't need a PhD in anthropology to know that gift exchange is a central part of society, not just in Britain, but all over the place. So obviously, you know, gifting at Easter is very important Okay, and this is something that people attach a lot of importance to and we know that a lot of children receive a lot of Easter eggs and, and kind of in theory there's not a, not a lot wrong with that I guess the problem becomes that because we over-gift and it's often such a sign of compensating for other things I think that um, children tend to end up with an awful lot of chocolate and those, that unfortunately can lead to waste and obviously that is not good because chocolate is a commodity that requires a lot of water to produce. It can be produced in, in very poor conditions in terms of the labour used and all those kinds of things. So really wasting something that's been as uh, labour intensive and environmentally costly to produce is obviously not ideal um, and it's something that perhaps needs to be on people's sustainability radar a little bit more.
1: I'm aware that you approach these questions from the perspective of a social anthropologist. What is it that you're able to see as a social anthropologist that differs from how we normally talk about these matters?
2: Yes, it's been interesting. Um, I've actually been working on issues relating to cocoa and sustainability and child labour for 20 years now. And as part of that work, I've actually been lucky enough to uh, work in different countries, on different continents, and one of the things that... People often tell me is that actually there's nothing to understand when it comes to things like child labour because it's caused by poverty, right? So why would you want to ask questions? Why do you need to talk to those child labourers? Because surely if you solve poverty, you solve the problem, right? From an anthropological perspective, that doesn't really work at all, that that idea that if you solve poverty, you solve child labour. We know, for example, that there's a lot of child poverty in the UK, but we don't have a child labour problem. So clearly, the explanatory framework of poverty is not good enough. Of course, poverty is a contributing factor, but it's not good enough to explain what's really going on. And that's why it's important, I think, from an anthropological perspective to really look at the context and what's going on there. So, for example, in West Africa, uh, one of the issues that came up again and again and again was child hunger, and that's what motivated children to be working on a farm where they had access to food and water, rather than be in school where actually they just sat there feeling hungry, feeling tired and in pain due to hunger. But that wasn't the same explanatory, that explanatory factor didn't work in other So, for example, in the Dominican Republic, where I did some work a few years ago, um, there wasn't particularly a child labour problem, but there was a problem with Haitian labour, and workers were being workers from Haiti were being underpaid and not necessarily treated on the same terms as Dominican workers. So that was an issue with. Migration and undocumented migration specifically. Similarly, there were issues uh, in India which were completely unrelated to migration, completely unrelated to child hunger, relating to other factors. So this idea that we can just understand child labour through the lens of poverty is totally flawed in my opinion.
1: Can you give us a sense of what it's like uh, in the cocoa production farms?
2: One of the ideas that people often have is that cocoa is grown on these massive sprawling plantations owned by multinational corporations. And actually, that's not the case at all. First of all, there are some plantations, although there's not very many. Most cocoa tends to be grown on small family-run farms or slightly larger estates in, in South America. And because the units of production are really small, obviously profits are really small if there are any profits at all. But like I say, it tends to be a fairly family-run affair with some seasonal labour being used. And as for the idea that basically, you know, multinationals like, you know, Nestle or Cadbury's or Hershey's or whoever are somehow owning and controlling these farms, again, it's just completely at odds with reality because that's really not the case. So, we have... In the public imagination, there are certain things going on, but actually, it's it's not really that's not really the reality on the ground.
1: And why has that happened? Why is there such rife misrepresentation?
2: That's a difficult question to answer. There are lots and lots of different reasons. I mean, there have been incidences of exploitation on estates and plantations, of course. Again, here we go back to the slave trade, that, you know, there's that enduring legacy in the public imagination that people are abused on large scale plantations by greedy landowners because there was a time when that was the case. You know, in certain commodities, that is still the case now. Unfortunately, we can't have a one size fits all to these kind of problems if we want to solve them, because the reality is that one size doesn't fit all.
1: And can you give an example of some kind of uh, implication or consequence of those misunderstandings for those who would want to implement good corporate social responsibility practices?
2: Yeah, I mean, the obvious one is the idea of bans, that people tell me all the time, well, if we want to stop child labour, what we have to do is implement a ban so that, you know, we ban plantations from using this kind of labour. As I've just uh, mentioned, plantations don't really exist in that sort of um, on that sort of large scale is actually we're often talking about small family farms who are dotted about, you know, very uh, huge areas of land across the developing world, across, you know, Ghana and the Ivory Coast and those kind of places. And you can't enforce that sort of monitoring. It just simply isn't feasible. So the idea of bans could potentially work You know, if there were large scale plantations, but in the absence of those, it's not something that's a feasible tool. Unfortunately, and this is where it gets kind of boring and tricky and fiddly, is it's very much about working with farmers, with farming communities, with children, with community leaders and getting a sort of more generalised, more inclusive strategy going to really bring about change by simply saying, well, our consumers don't want X, therefore we're going to ban this. It's not going to be effective.
0: Now, one way that this has been tackled, or at least uh, some approaches of trying to tackle is, is are, of course, THIS BROAD ARRAY THAT WE GET NOWADAYS OF CERTIFICATES AND LABELS ON THE CHOCOLATE BARS AND THESE ORGANIZATIONS TRYING TO IMPLEMENT VARIOUS FORMS OF FAIR TRADE OR LESS EXPLOITATIVE OF THESE uh, COCOA FARMERS, FOR EXAMPLE. SO YOU'VE WRITTEN A LOT ABOUT THIS ETHICS OF CARE THAT COMES WITH THIS TERRITORY. SO WHAT ARE SOME OF THE OPPORTUNITIES AND PITFALLS WHEN THIS SORT OF CARING RELATIONSHIP BECOMES THIS LABEL?
2: Yeah, I think that's a very difficult issue. I think I can completely understand why certain types of language are used, this sort of ethic of care is used in relation to the chocolate industry. Unfortunately, again, it very quickly becomes problematic. So what do I mean by that? Well, some of the marketing of ethical chocolate is very, very emotional. So you'll see a picture of a farmer and it says, you know, this is Manuel who lives in, I don't know, Costa Rica and he's, there's been some horrendous hurricane has come through and he's lost all the roofing sheets on his house and his 10 children are illiterate and ill and his wife has a wooden leg and, you know, sort of sort of almost Monty Python-esque scenarios where, you know, there's this idea of a poor underdog. But with now thanks to Fair Trade, you know, Manuel has rebuilt his house, his children are now all going to school, his, you know, wife's been able to get a prosthetic leg and his all these things and this idea that, you know, fair trade somehow is exacting this kind of transformational power over the lives of these communities is very, very problematic. It's very problematic because once more it's at odds with reality. The idea that through a certification scheme we can solve the world's problems is is again deeply, deeply flawed because it's a much messier, much longer term process than is what is being shown in marketing campaigns.
1: It it seems it takes us back to some very Victorian patronising ideas about a deserving poor as well.
2: Yes, and what I would add of course is the fact that um, from a consumer's perspective those sorts of uh, marketing strategies are very short termist. So, a consumer is going to feel uh, guilt and is going to think, oh, my goodness, you know, I've seen that adverta- advertising campaign during Fairtrade Fortnight. I must buy this type of coffee or this bar of chocolate because it's going to help these, these poor farmers, and they do. But unfortunately, it doesn't create repeated purchases because they've, once they've kind of ticked that box, and bought that item and felt better, chances are they're going to go back to just buying the regular stuff they were buying before next time they need to buy that item. Unfortunately, that type of marketing is kind of problematic because of the way in which it depicts these producers, but it's also problematic because it doesn't guarantee repeated purchases, which ultimately, if these brands are going to be sustainable, they depend on repeated purchasing. So, it's – and of course, You know, here I'm presenting, you know, fair trade marketing as being very static. Of course, it has improved. Things have changed. They're no longer relying quite as heavily on this message of, you know, poor Manuel sitting under a tree, scratching his head, wondering how on earth he's going to solve his problems until fair trade comes along. But, you know, there's still there's still some of that um, some of that. Language is still visible. I mean, it's interesting, for example, when you look at bars of chocolate that are produced using cocoa from South America and cocoa from Africa, because often the ones from South America will emphasize flavor, will emphasize, uh, you know, quality and things like that, whereas the bars from Africa will emphasize how much they're helping people. So there are still very strong undertones of this idea that there are certain people we need to help. They're the white man's burden.
1: And would you say there's an element of exoticization in there as well?
2: Oh of course, and it's it's really visible. I mean there are some chocolate companies who've tried to move away from the idea of underdog what I call underdog marketing, and instead of that they 've uh, tried to portray the farmers as sexy, so there was one company, for example, who uh, took pictures of female producers, they had their hair done nicely, and they were they were beautifully made out. But that in itself, is slightly problematic because again it's it 's fueling that idea that the producers somehow satisfy us either by being visually attractive or by satisfying our moral conscience and actually they 're just people you know, just like we wouldn 't want to be commodified in that way they don't. I remember years ago i was in I was in Ghana and I was working with some farmers and I saw a lady who was sitting and she had baskets in front of her and she had a basket of labels and a basket of pineapples and she was taking a label and putting, sticking it on the pineapple and putting it in a basket and she was doing this with a lot of anger. and. I am an anthropologist, therefore very nosy. So I thought, oh, there's a story here. Let, let's go and find out what's going on here. So I went over and I said oh, hi. And I, I you know, asked her what she was doing. And she said, well, I'm sticking, you know, you can see what I'm doing. I'm sticking these labels on these pineapples and sticking them in this basket. And I looked at the labels and I looked at her. And I said, wow, but that's actually you on that label. And she said, yeah. She said, this this, these white men came and they lined us all up and they said, right, we need some pictures for our, for our new labels. And so they picked out the best-looking people out of a line and they took pictures of us. And she said, now it's my job to stick these pictures of myself on these pineapples to be sold wherever they're going to be sold. And she said, I don't like it. How, how weird is that? Yeah,
0: no, this was a really good, uh, really good and striking story. And it kind of ties in, uh, again, remembering something you wrote uh, in a book chapter previously. I think the statement was something, or the argument was something like, what can, at worst, what happens with these labels or these, uh, these certificates is that they replicate what they set out to oppose in the first place. So, um, So is this one good example of it, or is there other ways to think about how these, if you will, perhaps good intentions, can turn against themselves.
2: Yeah, that's something that's been a really difficult thing to accept in my work, is that I very much started out thinking that the big guys were the bad guys. And so that the big multinational corporations were... You know, I I kind of bought into the whole dichotomistic world of, you know, good guys and bad guys when it comes to ethics and trade actually i have learned that the road to hell is often paved with good intentions and that actually there are no good and bad guys of course there are some people who you wouldn't want to you know you wouldn't want to sit at the same table at but for the very most part actually everyone is trying to do something is trying to do the right thing for me the piece of the jigsaw is still missing that is still missing is the fact that people aren't prepared to listen to to producers enough and actually aren't prepared to engage with them on their terms and for example I remember about 20 years ago I was talking to some farmers and um, they'd been asked how they wanted to spend the fair trade premium and so they said oh we'd like to build a church in the village and they were told oh no 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 that's not that's not going to fly no no we do something else so they said okay well uh, we'd like to have televisions then and they were told, uh, no, no, that's not really going to work either. Um, how about a water well? How about, how about a school? How about, how about you all get bicycles or solar panels? And they didn't want bicycles and solar panels and mosquito nets and immunizations. They wanted a, a church and televisions. Um, but that's not the sort of narrative that would be very sellable to a Western consumer. Hey, buy this bar of chocolate so a Ghanaian farmer can watch TV.
0: In two episodes, at least, we've been discussing a little bit of Levinasian ethics. And uh, one thing that is very powerful in Levinas is the idea that for you to be ethical in the first place is that you would have some very powerful revelation of the other. So you have to sort of feel the despair of the other in your soul to be ethical in the first place. So I'm just imagining how these labels and these certificates, especially when they are plastered on bananas or chocolates or wherever, they kind of effectively create this blockage of that to ever happen. So in the sense where there may be great good intentions and they may certainly improve the lives of uh, the farmers, they also create this uh, just a symbol that can sort of alienate both the consumer and the farmer in two ways. It acts as a symbol or a rule or an externalization of ethical uh, responsibility in the first place would you see that that's something that might be going on with this reliance on these labels to kind of channel or sort of satiate our uh, desire to be an ethical person when you consume these things?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's a danger. I mean, again, it's also important to engage with the sort of marketing that doesn't rely so heavily on such striking moral messages. I mean, there is as I said before, a lot of marketing now that revolves around placing an emphasis on quality. But I think it's important to remember that even in that, as I said before, there are some insidious messages creeping through, like, you know, chocolate made with Latin American cocoa is, you know, very flavorful, whereas, you know, chocolate made with uh, cocoa from Africa, you know, helps, you know, uh, wildlife or helps people or whatever so I think I think to answer your question briefly yes there is this is absolutely what's going on but I think it doesn't capture the entire story because chocolate can also be marketed in other ways.
1: As we head now into coronavirus what do you think is interesting to note within the world of chocolate consumption?
2: The coronavirus has made us consume in very strange ways so at the beginning you know the media were vastly reporting uh People panic buying toilet rolls and tin tomatoes and cleaning products and all those sorts of things. I mean, certainly it's had quite a drastic effect on chocolates. Um, first of all, because obviously a key uh, key point in the chocolate calendar is Easter, when people uh, buy a lot of eggs and chocolate rabbits and things like that and, and, and give them as gifts. And obviously that didn't happen this year on anything like the same scale because grandparents were uh, locked up at home and unable to buy or pass on things. Not just grandparents, aunties and uncles, whoever, the extended family, even parents perhaps weren't able to gift anything like as much. The other big development is that the coronavirus has been very destructive for the craft chocolate market. So as I said before has been a big recent revolution in chocolate where we no longer just buy i don't know dairy milk or whatever but people are you know buying you know the special uh, single origin colombian cocoa you know handcrafted from bean to bar with satisfying notes of whatever this is the market that's been hit really hard by the coronavirus so, we know, for example, that the craft market producing these kinds of more luxurious chocolates, these kind of specialty flavor uh, profile chocolates, um, has been hit especially hard by the coronavirus. So, we know, for example, through research undertaken by the uh, Fine Cacao and Chocolate Institute, that uh, 20% of the small chocolate businesses that they have surveyed think they're actually going to go out of business as a result of the coronavirus. And their. Um, of them are are reporting a a drop in sales of over 90%. So this is really bad news for the producers of this uh, more specialty chocolate. And this is where, again, it's a slightly ugly and saddening story that unfortunately we're back to the fact that the sort of things that we eat or in this particular period we don't eat actually affects whether somebody on the other side of the world gets to eat or not eat. Um, Because of course if we're not buying these kinds of um, specialty uh, chocolates then the producers are are inevitably going to suffer.
1: What impact is this likely to have on working conditions and child labour?
2: Well, it's never good news, inevitably. Um, I mean, it's too early to say, because at the moment, uh, things are changing very, very rapidly. But of course, you know, these communities, rural communities don't have access to computers and the internet and all those kind of things. So if children are unable to go to school and unable to make up their education in other ways, obviously, there's not an awful lot they're going to be be able to do. We know that also the only thing we've got to go by at the moment for comparison is the Ebola virus, uh, which obviously struck West Africa very badly. And during that time, a lot of births, for example, weren't registered. I think it was up to 70,000 births in Liberia went unregistered during the Ebola outbreak. And so those are the kind of things that have an indirect impact on the rights of children, and which unfortunately influence the likelihood they end up in the worst forms of child labour.
1: And should we worry that there might be some breakdown of global food change generally that could result in food shortages around the world?
2: I think uh, the answer to that, I I mean, it's difficult. One doesn't want to be alarmist because these are early days and I think we have to hope for the best. I think... uh, This is very worrying for food distribution and for food supply and I think it once more brings home the fact that our food supply system isn't anything like as resilient as it needs to be in order for everybody to be able to eat the amounts that they need. In the case of chocolate at the moment, um, there were fears initially that you know farmers wouldn't be able to produce cocoa beans because they'd be too sick to work and all those things. That hasn't actually happened. The production of cocoa beans is staying the same. The problem is very much in the distribution. Um, you know, ports are closed, warehouses aren't necessarily operating, manufacturers aren't able to you know, make the chocolate because daffaril, so there's, there's production problems, manufacturing problems in Europe and North America and distribution problems, but not, not at the production end. But certainly more needs to be done to make our, our supply chains more resilient and that needs to happen very, very urgently.
0: Um, is there any fear when one thinks about this current situation? Because of course, for better or for worse, all these certificates and labels, again, like Fairtrade, they become tools of marketing, and the marketization of one's guilt or one's, uh, at least, the ethical inclinations, if you will, for better or for worse. But now that we have the COVID, we see a massive internalization of, I would, I would imagine, the global imagination. So people could easily turn towards thinking that now we have, uh, we have our problems internally now, so we don't have the opportunity... Or the inclination anymore to extend this guilt outwards as much.
2: I think that's a really important and interesting point, and I think this once more um, brings us back to this concept has, has come up in recent years about the ethical consumer, and you know we know that the ethical consumer is a bit of a myth. That we know that we're all quite fickle creatures when it comes to our buying choices and that, you know, what's a moral imperative one week might not be a moral imperative the next. And I think exactly as you've just described, this is probably what we're going to see in the course of the next few months and years that people are saying, well, actually, I have my problems. So I'm not going to worry about, you know, that coffee producer in Honduras or that, you know, cocoa farmer in the Ivory Coast.
1: No, I just think it's very interesting to hear how you're linking together the consumption and production of this commodity and doing so in a way that identifies major uh, issues of exploitation, of poverty. It, it's very refreshing to hear.
2: Yeah, it's funny. In uh, you know, There's often talk in the business literature about needing to be more engaged with the real world, but I think there's a lot of scope for more research, you know, there's talk of it being necessary, but I don't necessarily see a lot more researchers coming out kind of investigating the sort of empirical side of things. Um, But perhaps that's just my personal bias, you know.
0: No, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, it tends to be that uh, even when our literature engages with many of these kind of phenomena, the markets uh, themselves are rarely seen as ontologically problematic. Uh, all these problems are very often written as epiphenomenons, and this is why a more holistic approach, uh, I think, is very illuminate. Uh, can illuminate many of these things.
2: I think we tend to think very simplistically as human beings. I think for people, I mean, one thing is I know there are people working on equations to solve child labour. So there are people think, who think that this can be solved mathematically, that you know, if you get the right uh, number for how much. Uh, a unit of land can produce and you ensure that the right amount of x inputs are produced etc uh the farmer will have x amount of money and then child labor will be eradicated it will never happen you know um it simply is so so far removed from reality that um i personally don't believe that this is the way forward at all but it's a big school of thought and you know um that's what people believe. I mean, there are some chocolate companies who believe they will eradicate child labour in the next five years. I, I mean, they've been saying it a while. Um, the the goalpost moves rather a lot. But, you know, let's wait and see.
1: Do we need to hear from more anthropologists?
2: Well, we always need to hear from more anthropologists. The problem is that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Um, as I said, there's Uh, Just not enough people who kind of work on these kinds of issues and that's, that's a great shame.
0: If you had a magic wand, what would you focus on? What do you think would be the best way to approach these issues of inequality in the long run?
2: I would absolutely have farmers sitting around at the table at every single meeting that takes place to discuss them. I think it's an absolute aberration that there have been policymakers in New York and London and Geneva working on solutions to fix child labour. And there has been absolutely no representation from farmers at those meetings. I think the farmers are kept at arm's length so, so far away that there is no hope of us being able to overcome these difficulties. I, I really am often reminded of a work of Foucault, who, you know, talks about the panopticon prison, where, you know, the, um, the, the prisoners are always a topic of conversation. They're always talked about, but they're never, they're never engaged with directly. And I'm very, very often reminded of that when I look at some of the, um some of the things that are happening in relation to child labor and cocoa production
0: thank you very much amanda
1: excellent